Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. This is one of the days when we listen to a lecture, and our lecturer today is Professor George M. Marsden. Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame. An amazing scholar who's done so much to give us uh, new light on American Christianity and particularly on the history of evangelicalism and fundamentalism in our country. He's also written very learnedly about higher education. One of uh, the most important books I remember reading on the subject came out in 1994, The Soul of the American University, from Protestant Establishment to Established Non-Belief. But today he's speaking on a topic that he knows a lot about, Jonathan Edwards. In 2003, Professor Marston published Jonathan Edwards, A Life with Yale University Press. There's no debate that this is the definitive biography of the great Jonathan Edwards for our generation and maybe for one or two to come. It's an amazing book. Amazing research, and we invited Dr. Marston to come to Beeson Divinity School to talk about his research, about Edwards, about how one goes about doing a biography of such a massive figure, and then also to talk about what we can learn today from Jonathan Edwards. So let's go to Hodges Chapel here at Beeson Divinity School and listen to our friend, Professor George Marston, speaking on Jonathan Edwards. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm deeply grateful for this award and humbled to receive an award simply for doing what I like to do, but uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for uh, the, the institution of this, this award and to be remembered uh, in the name of John Pollock. I did get a very kind letter from him after the announcement of the award, so he's still uh, doing well. I want to talk about two things today. Uh, one, to say a few things about writing a biography of Jonathan Edwards, and then uh, talk about what we can learn from Jonathan Edwards for today, what, what we can appropriate from Jonathan Edwards. One of the, the challenges when you're writing a biography is to f find a thematic center. Uh, our lives are very complicated and have all sorts of dimensions to them. And uh, Jonathan Edwards' life uh, is particularly complicated. Uh, like a lot of 18th century people, he was into to everything uh, around him, and there are many angles from which uh, one could uh, talk about Edwards. Edwards uh, is usually regarded as America's uh, greatest theologian. He was also a profound philosopher. Uh, he was a, a pastor. Uh, he was a famous preacher. Uh, he was an awakener during the Great Awakening. Uh, he was a leader of the party, uh, New Light Party, promoting the awakening. Uh, he was a defender of the Calvinist and Puritan heritage. He was a biblicist. Uh, he was a missionary to the Indians. Uh, he was an educator, and uh, he was a family man. 
Uh, so there's all sorts of dimensions to Edward's life, and the challenge is to find where, where the center is. Let me just say, if, uh, to remind you, if, if you're not uh, familiar with Edward's life exactly, a, a few of the, the details, uh, just to um, make sure that you're, you're clear uh, about the basics of his career. Uh, Edwards was born in 1703, uh, 400, um, 301 years ago. Uh, he was the son of a pastor in, in a town near Hartford, Connecticut, in, in uh, New England. And uh, Edwards went to Yale College when that was a fledgling institution. He uh, briefly served as a tutor at Yale College, and then uh, in 1727, he be, uh, became the assistant to his famous grandfather, uh, Solomon Stoddard, who uh, was the, the pastor of the church in Northampton, Massachusetts, in the western half of Massachusetts on the Connecticut River. And Stoddard was the most powerful man in western Massachusetts. Uh, and Edwards then, when, when Stoddard died in 1729, Edwards inherited that uh, very influential uh, parish. Uh, just after he moved to Northampton, he married uh, uh, Sarah Pierpont, and eventually they had uh, 11 children. So I said Edwards uh, was, was always a family man. He had 10 sisters, uh, and then uh, he and Sarah had 11 children. So he was always surrounded uh, mostly by, by, by women uh, throughout his life. Uh, he became famous first uh, when he oversaw a, a spectacular awakening in Northampton in 1734-1735 when just about everyone in the town seemed to be seeking salvation. And uh, that wasn't the first awakening uh, that there was, but it was one of the most spectacular, and Edwards wrote about it. He, he wrote a uh, sort of a scientific treatise uh, about the awakening, and that became widely publicized uh, in in England. Uh, Isaac Watts uh, picked it up. Uh, John Wesley uh, was influenced by it. And then Edwards became associated with a, a series of awakenings that eventually became known as the Great Awakening uh, in, uh, the, uh, in, in North America. And a, prom a promoter and defender of the awakenings, uh, he wrote a, a famous treatise uh, defending the, uh, several treatises defending the awakenings and a fam famous treatise analyzing awakenings called uh, Treatise on Religious Affections. He was also uh, a, a famed for his sermon, Sinners in, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which he preached at the height of the awakening. Uh, it's a very uh, well-known uh, sermon. Uh, at the uh, end of the 1740s, Edwards was dismissed from his congregation in Northampton because he tried, because of his interest in uh, having a pure church, he was trying to make the standards for church membership a little stricter than they had been, uh, and his congregation dismissed him. He became a missionary to the Indians in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, uh, during the French, turned out to be during the French and Indian Wars, uh, and a very dangerous place in western Massachusetts. And finally, he was called to be president of uh, the College of New Jersey at Princeton, and he died there of a smallpox vaccination in 1758. 
those are the basic facts. Now, uh, the question is, how do you make that story interesting? How how do you find uh, a way to tell the whole story of all these dimensions of of someone's life? Uh, And what, what I did was at first put that question to the side and simply thought about Where's the story? What's uh, what's the story? And what's interesting here, uh, it seemed to me, to be to try to understand this very famous monumental person in his own time. What was his life like in in some of its detail? What's different about it uh, from uh, what we know? And I needed to explain that to readers. Two things struck me as particularly illuminating in trying to uh, to say, how do you understand someone in 18th century America? First is to think about exactly when Edwards lived. He lived uh, from 1703 to 1758. So he died before the American Revolution was really in anybody's mind. He was, he was almost an exact contemporary of Benjamin Franklin, uh, but... Uh, Edwards died well before the, uh, the revolution. So he was a British citizen, and he was very loyal to the British crown, particularly uh, the Hanoverians, the Georges in, in British history. And, and part of, uh, the major part of his loyalty was because he saw the British crown as being raised up to defend the Protestant cause. And in Edward's day, uh, he was heir to uh, what was something like the the Cold War of the 20th century, where uh, Western Europe was divided between Protestants and Catholics for centuries. And either there were hot wars or cold wars going on, uh, but political affiliations were very closely tied to religious affiliation. And in England, uh, it had just recently been settled that the English crown had to be Protestant, as it still is. But that even, even that wasn't entirely settled. During Edward's time, uh, there was a famous invasion by Bonnie, uh, uh, Prince Charles, uh, who went to uh, Scotland, raised a Catholic army, and uh, invaded Great Britain. Uh, he was uh, defeated, but uh, there was still a possibility that England might go back onto the, the Catholic side. So Edwards is very much shaped by his Protestant British political loyalties. Second thing that's really illuminating in understanding Edwards' time is that in New England, he was at the intersection of three competing cultures. Uh, the British Protestant culture, of which he was a part, heir to Puritan New England. The French Catholic culture, just to the north uh, in uh, uh, Quebec. Uh, and then the, the various Indian cultures, which were in between, most of which were allied with uh, the French Catholics rather than uh, with with the British. All three were competing for the same territory. Now, we know how that turns out, but in Edward's day, it wasn't obvious that the the British Protestants would win, and it was conceivable that it might have turned out uh, that New England would have ended up, uh, like Quebec, uh, a uh, Protestant province in in an essentially Catholic continent. 
so uh, Edwards lived in, in uh, tense political times, uh, and I think it's particularly illuminating to think of the relationship to the Indians. Uh, New England was the frontier, and the Indians were very much present in Edwards' uh, life, throughout his life. In, in my biography, I start uh, with an account of the Deerfield Massacre of 1704, uh, just after Edwards was born, a couple months after he was born. And the massacre was uh, an Indian raid on a town of some 300 people, uh, killed about 40 people, and carried a, a hundred and some uh, into captivity. So about half the town either was killed or carried into captivity. And the Deerfield Massacre was, I think, to New England in the 18th century pretty much uh, like what 9-11 is to us in the 21st century. Uh, whatever the, the Indians' justification uh, for what they were doing to the New Englanders, it appeared to be a terrorist attack that uh, this could happen uh, to to anyone. And, and the Edwards connection is that uh, two of the uh, children that were killed in the attack were first cousins of, of Edwards, and two others were carried into captivity, one of whom, uh, Eunice Williams, they were all the daughters of the minister of the town. Eunice Williams was seven years old when she was captured, uh, and when the other captives were redeemed, brought back to New England, Eunice refused to come back. This was several years later. She had become Indian and eventually married an Indian, and what was far worse for, from the New Englanders' point of view, she had become Roman Catholic. So you can imagine that at the Edwards dinner table, when they, pray, they had prayers several times a day, Eunice Williams would always be one of the standard items that he would be praying for, so that this relationship to the Catholics and to the Indians was uh, a major part of his, of his consciousness. And, and for New Englanders, the failure to keep on good terms with the Indians, the failure to evangelize them, was one of the most conspicuous failures in the whole uh, Puritan experiment. Uh, so uh, Edwards was, was always... Uh, concerned with that, and, and that failure was accentuated by the fact that there were periodic uh, Indian warfares uh, going on. Uh, in the 1740s, uh, when the famous missionary to the Indians, David Brainerd, visited Northampton, uh, there was a war going on, and Northampton was fortified against Indian attacks, so that the poignancy of uh, Brainerd's visit and then his death in, in Northampton uh, is, is increased when you think that this missionary to the Indians is, uh, is, is working in a time when things are falling apart as far as relationships to the Indians are on a larger scale. And so uh, Edwards... Uh, when, after Brainerd died, uh, Edwards dropped everything he was doing. He was uh, ready to write a famous treatise, uh, which eventually did write, on the freedom of the will. But he put that aside in order to write a biography of this missionary, David Brainerd, uh, which, and the biography became one of Edwards' most uh, famous uh, works. Uh, and then uh, when Edwards left his church, uh, in Northampton in 1750, 
he took a post as missionary to the Indians uh, in Stockbridge. And it seems to me, if you have understand his background, that was not because he was exiled to Stockbridge, as some people uh, say, uh, but rather because uh, he had such a heart for evangelism uh, to to the Indians and, and uh, had a, such a strong sense that this was uh, one of the major priorities that any uh, New Englander had to be uh, working for. Well, I, I talk about the relationship to the Indians to suggest uh, that Edwards lived in exciting times and, and, and also that uh, although that's not the relation to the Indians is not the most prominent part of his life, uh, it does suggest that, there, that this many-dimensional aspect of, of his life. It also suggests that uh, despite the fact that Edwards was in some ways an austere intellectual, uh, even though he is deeply involved in, in many practical works, uh, nonetheless, uh, his life was filled uh, with, with lots of, of drama. Uh, Edwards was a very private personality, and, and that for the biographer can be a problem. He doesn't make small talk. He doesn't talk about himself in his sermons. He doesn't use illustrations uh, uh, from himself. Even uh, uh, when he writes to his children, uh, typically the letter will be, uh, we miss you, uh, you're far away, and we're worried you might die before you come back, and we're particularly worried about the state of your soul. And so uh, he speaks more as pastor uh, rather than as uh, you know, small talk about home. There's one good example, uh, which I thought was particularly striking, where his son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., is off on a mission uh, with, uh, he's 10 years old, and he's gone in, into northern Pennsylvania with a missionary uh, to, to learn in, Indian languages. And uh, Jonathan Edwards writes to him, and it's the same thing about, you know, the state of your soul, and we're worried about, uh, about that. Uh, but there's no news from, from home. And, and I, I noticed that in another letter, Edwards mentioned that he had had a bad fall from a horse. Uh, and you'd think if you're writing to a 10-year-old, you'd, you'd at least mention that and maybe say, be careful or uh, something like, uh, like, like that. But no, Edwards is so much on track of his role as pastor evangelist uh, that that's even, even the, the primary way he relates uh, to his children. But that... Uh, then leads to uh, what I think actually does turn out to be a uh, an illuminating, unifying theme, that once you, get, you begin to put these stories together, you see that Edwards, despite his personal reserve, was a very passionate, affectionate person. But his passions and his affections are driven by his his theology, and they're driven by his theology more consistently than most of us are driven by our theological uh, commitments. Uh, he's constantly driven by uh, a passionate concern that eternity rests for each individual on their relationship 
uh, to God, either uh, eternity, uh, eternity of, uh, of joy or an eternity of, uh, of damnation. And so uh, whether he's risking uh, the, his life and the life of his family to minister to the Indians or writing letters to his children or preaching the awakenings, uh, he's constantly concerned with this one personal relationship that puts all other relationships uh, in, in its shadow. Uh, and so it's through that theological lens that I think we can best uh, ultimately see how the various strains of Edward's life comes together. Well, this leads into uh, the second part of what I want to talk about, more or less the, the uh, application, and that is uh, what can we learn from Edwards uh, in the 21st century? And uh, this, again, uh, we learn most uh, about Edwards through his theological insights. The first and most important principle, I think, that should challenge us uh, is one that's not at all unique, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's basic. And that is that Edwards always begins with God. And that may, may seem elementary and uh, in this place uh, redundant, uh, but even, I think, many of today's Christians are in the habit of uh, starting with uh, their own understandings of human needs, of moral principles, of uh, political affiliations or desirable ideals, and then tailoring God to fit whatever that analysis produces. Edwards uh, recognized the growing tendency in the enlightened and uh, liberal thought of uh, his own day to, to do that and insisted all the more uh, thoroughly on always starting with God and God's revelation in Scripture as the starting point uh, for all uh, questions. Closely related to that basic point uh, is, is, is one I think is more distinctive to Edwards, and that is he's always starting with the dynamic loving God of personal relationships. At the center of the universe, Edwards sees, is the intra-Trinitarian relationship uh, of, the triune, uh, of the triune God, and the very reason for creation is God's desire to share the love of the Godhead uh, with other uh, responsible and personable, personal beings. Uh, so the universe, uh, the creation of the universe is not simply something that happened uh, long ago, but rather it's an ongoing intimate process of God communicating God's love to his creatures. Uh, so the, the universe is the very language of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. It, the universe, the creation, bears uh, a relationship to God, something like our language has a relationship to us. It's not identical with us, but it's intimately an expression uh, of our being. And the, the, since the universe is new every moment. Uh, Edwards is very much up on the, on the latest physics. Uh, the universe is, is a different set of atoms every, every moment. Uh, it it uh, is 
sustained by God's creative power, and if God withdrew his creative power, the universe uh, would cease uh, cease to exist. So uh, he was taken with with the verse, he who can keep you from falling, that God is sustaining the universe, and the creation, therefore, is an ongoing expression of God's creative power. That emphasis uh, seems to me to be an illuminating way to speak about the sovereignty of God. Uh, I was brought up in a Presbyterian tradition where where there was a great emphasis on the sovereignty of God, but that often could be an abstraction, whereas for Edwards, the sovereignty of God is always an intimate and personal relationship as part of God's communication. Uh, Edwards, I, I think, was primarily responding to the deist threat in the 18th century. People uh, like his contemporaries, uh, Franklin or later Jefferson, uh, were, uh, were essentially deists. And basically what they believed was that uh, the uh, that, that God created the universe and then uh, had had made it uh, the right way in the first place and uh, distanced himself from the universe that, that uh, there was a a, a creator uh, in the distance somewhere but was not personally involved with uh, with the universe and miracles and and the like. Uh, Edwards went in the opposite direction. Rather than distancing God from the universe, his theology puts God more intimately related to the universe. As, and, and, and this is right at the time of the Enlightenment where there's this tendency to uh, abstract uh, God uh, from, from the universe. Edwards' universe was like uh, Newton's, uh, Isaac Newton's, a universe of relationships. Uh, A change in one part of the Newtonian world affects everything else. Uh, Everything's interrelated. Uh, Yet in in Edwards' universe, having room for scientific laws of physical relationships was ultimately uh, in the context of a universe that is basically one of personal relationships. And personal relationships are constantly interacting uh, with each other, or the two things are, are, are all of one piece. It seems to me that in contrast to Edwards' view, there's a kind of quasi-deism uh, in the modern world. And once again, I think you can find that even among uh, many Christian believers, even among many of us. I think our tendency, rather than to think of the universe as essentially uh, an expression of personal relationships, is to think of the physical world as for all practical purposes, an impersonal, independent entity uh, run by laws known by natural science. And then technology vastly increases the dimensions of our life that we think of as run by impersonal kinds of uh, kinds of forces, and, and so much of our life is, is shaped by these impersonal, uh, either natural or technological forces that determine how we uh, earn our livings, how we spend our money, uh, how we value other people, how we communicate, even, even how we worship. Uh, all of these, we have techniques 
that, that we uh, discover of how to make these things work most efficiently. And then I think what religious believers often do is supplement that impersonal universe that we, we live in most of the time. We supplement it uh, with our beliefs in a higher spiritual reality, occasional divine uh, interventions, and some moral principles that uh, somewhat temper uh, the way uh, we relate to the impersonal uh, technological and society and natural world. Edward's starting point in the triune God's ongoing love uh, seems to me to provide a basis for trying to cultivate some alternative sensibilities. Uh, for Edward's, the most essential dimension of all reality is the spiritual and the personal that pervades everything. And these are then not just not beliefs that are, that are added to what we believe about the impersonal material world, uh, but rather these are dimensions that define the material world and everything else. All creation is an expression of the redemptive love of God in Christ. And hence, when we see nature, we do not view it properly unless we see it in its primary relationship, in its relationship to God. And that's not just an abstraction, uh, but rather for Edwards, it's essentially uh, an effective relationship. We see uh, nature as language of uh, a person. So, so we respond to it with, uh, we should be responding to it with our affections. Uh, Edwards kept a notebook that he called Images and Shadows of Divine Things. And in that notebook, uh, he recorded many reflections on how the beauties of Christ's love was revealed uh, in, uh, in everything around us. And since nature is corrupted by sin, uh, its revelations could be of, of uh, Christ's redemptive love. Uh, the beauties of the universe uh, are the harmonies of right relationships that we sometimes glimpse uh, in the beauty of trees uh, or of flowers. Uh, Edwards often, uh, he, he liked the word harmony, he often used uh, musical analogies to speak of uh, glimpses of the, the universe in its proper uh, relationship, that we see uh, harmonies in relationship to the whole. Uh, but our problem is that our sins uh, limit our sensibilities. Uh, the beauties of God's harmonies and, and, and sort of the right relationship to the universe are there, uh, but because we're so preoccupied with our selfish desires and sensuous preoccupations and the like, uh, we don't see uh, the love that's at the center uh, of things, and rather we see uh, just a part. Uh, and so we don't have uh, the eyes to see, or in the musical analogy, the, the ears to hear uh, the harmonies around us. It reminds me in the town uh, where I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, when, when I came back from college and, and uh, by that time I liked to listen to, uh, to Bach and Mozart and uh, my contemporaries in the town would say, boy, that's really boring music. How can you listen to that stuff? Uh, they, they, they didn't have the, the ears to hear, even though the beauty uh, was there. Some, some of Edward's most profound and frequently reiterated reflections are on the foolishness of allowing 
our self-centered uh, preoccupations uh, with transitory material desires and the like uh, to block our vision or block our hearing of, of, of this beauty around us. That we're, uh, and, and the only way to break that tendency is to go back to the image of the light, is, is to get a glimpse uh, of the beauty of God's ineffable, ineffable love revealed in Christ. And, and once one gets a glimpse of that beauty, then one cannot help uh, but be uh, drawn to it. Uh, that uh, if you perceive a, uh, a, a beautiful object uh, or you hear a, a, a wonderful piece of uh, performance of, of, of music or you see a, a beautiful person, you can't help but be drawn to that person. And so uh, be, being given eyes to see is, is given, getting a glimpse of Christ's redemptive love for the, for the undeserving. Uh, I find that idea of the uh, being transformed by a glimpse of the overwhelming beauty of Christ a good way of explaining the paradox of God's grace and our choice. When we perceive something immensely beautiful, we can't help but be drawn to it, yet it's still our will, certainly, that is acting. We're not acting against our will. Uh, nonetheless, uh, our will is compelled by the object uh, to which we are drawn. Uh, and so Edwards points out that being able to act according to our own deepest desires, whatever the des desires are, is the essence of free choice. And if your desires are drawn to uh, something immensely beautiful, uh, it's still your choice uh, to be drawn uh, to that, even though it's something external to you that in a way constrains you uh, to do it. In this life, our, our sense of God's beauty is never perfected, and our wills remain fickle. Uh, and it's only with that life-changing revolution in our affections that we can begin uh, to view the universe with God at the center uh, rather than ourselves. Only then uh, can, can we begin to see that uh, the, the short-sightedness of our mundane uh, preoccupations and our self-centered self-delusions. Uh, in, in a universe where God's love is light and, image, and, and Edward's probably favorite image for God's love is, is, is light, as a biblical image uh, as well. Uh, we can think of our hearts in their natural condition as like black holes that absorb the light rather than reflect it. And I think that's a, uh, an image that Edwards would have liked. Uh, the, and the revolution of the glimpse of uh, the beauty of Christ's love uh, that that brings uh, is one in which uh, we, revalue, we revalue all our uh, mundane desires and see uh, that they need to be put in the context of God's love, and then we love uh, whatever, uh, whatever it is uh, that God loves. Edward's God-filled view of the universe also provides a basis for a critique of some of the most fundamental principles of our uh, Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment modernity uh, that are still taken uh, for granted in, in the contemporary world. Especially important, in, in addition to the quasi-deism I mentioned earlier, 
uh, is a widespread belief that human happiness must be the controlling concern in any adequate religious view or philosophy. Uh, as I suggested earlier, uh, theologians since the 18th century have tended to work from the premise that the universe must be designed for our happiness. They then proceed to identify principles that seem to contribute to human happiness and then to characterize God according to those principles. Uh, most secular philosophers do essentially the same thing, uh, but they recognize better than the theologians that God isn't really necessary to that equation. They, why not, they ask, just say that the good is whatever promotes human happiness uh, and leave the distracting uh, claims about God out of the equation. Edwards, by contrast, insists on the premise that the triune God as revealed in Jesus Christ defines whatever is good. God is essentially a loving being, and the communication of that love is the reason for the existence of the universe. So th that's the fundamental premise. Then why God permits evil is a mystery, and it's a mystery ultimately beyond our comprehending. Uh, but whatever the reason, it must be a subdimension of God's loving design since God defines uh, what's good. Now, Edwards spent a great deal of time in some of his uh, profound treatises in uh, trying to argue against the Enlightenment critics that the Calvinist versions of uh, explaining uh, the uh, the, the moral nature of the universe, uh, did not have any more serious problems than the Enlightenment uh, alternatives did. Yet ultimately he acknowledged uh, that there were still uh, mysteries involved. We never get quite down to, uh, to, to, uh, to understand things the way God uh, does. Well, I think that leaving aside the details of how Edwards addresses those issues, and the details, I think, are worth reading. Nonetheless, the general principle that we can learn from is that it's helpful to have an attitude a la the book of Job in understanding God's larger purposes. That is, that our understanding of a personal and loving God uh, has its limits. Uh, nonetheless, we have to affirm that essentially uh, God defines uh, whatever is good. Today, it seems to me in the Western world, the prevailing conception of God is, is that uh, God exists to protect our ha happiness and to prevent calamities. Uh, in Christian churches, at least, uh, there's so much emphasis on uh, these things, especially in prayer, uh, and on th that uh, it seems as though uh, God is there to do good for whatever uh, we or our friends or our acquaintances need. Uh, and I think that attitude, uh, that God is essentially there to, to make us happy, is, is one that can easily lead to disillusion. And, and I've often seen people who leave the church who say something like this, I could not believe in a God who would permit so-and-so, you know, permit little Joey to have leukemia or whatever. Uh, and I think that attitude grows out of the widespread uh, tendency to think that uh, our own standards of justice and morality should be what defines the way God uh, should be. 
Uh, Edwards, on the other hand, is always starting uh, with God and with the premise that in this mysterious universe, uh, God defines uh, what is good, and if we don't understand it, uh, we nonetheless have to defer to God's uh, wisdom. I think Edwards is uh, particularly a useful person for American evangelicals to relate to uh, and for, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, I think it's useful to have wider recognition of a progenitor of the evangelical tradition in America who has such a high respect for, for intellect. My friend Mark Knoll has written very eloquently on the scandal of the evangelical mind and the tendency toward anti-intellectualism. And further, I think that ironically, uh, American evangelicals often seem to be more followers of Benjamin Franklin than they are of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, They admire uh, practicality, friendliness, moralisms, easy formulas, and quantifiable results. And and while these Franklin-esque traits aren't all bad, uh, they sometimes contribute to evangelical superficiality. And uh, we all know that there are the equivalent of spiritual purveyors of, uh, of, of uh, junk food that have uh, long capitalized on evangelicalism's market-driven uh, economy. Uh, so awareness and respect for such a substantial tradition as people like Edwards uh, is, is a good way to help restore uh, a healthy balance. And that leads to a more substantial point that modern evangelical Christianity, uh, especially in its evangelical varieties, uh, is also in part a a product uh, of the Enlightenment. Uh, Mark Knoll's big book of last year, America's God, uh, makes that point uh, very eloquently. Uh, And Nathan Hatch is uh, another friend of mine, a book, The Democratization of American Christianity, shows how popular American uh, religion, Baptists and Methodists, uh, picked up uh, American ideals, democratic ideals, as as, uh, blended them uh, with uh, the ideals of the New Republic, uh, with the ideals of popular Christianity. And I think this is still very much a part of our culture. Last year, uh, around the 4th of July, I saw a church sign, that's a church sign to mind you, uh, that said, the last four letters in American are, I can. So Benjamin Franklin has won, even in the churches, uh, American churches accommodation to American values and uh, whatever whatever works uh, is a key to American evangelicalism's uh, wonderful vitality and resilience. Uh, yet at the same time, there is a price uh, to pay, and Edwards is one of the first people uh, to point that out. Many of the, the later developments in American evangelicalism first came on the scene uh, during the uh, extravagances of the Great Awakening. Uh, and, and often, as Edwards recognized, uh, evangelicalism's emphasis on conversion and testimony can get turned into a celebration of oneself. Uh, and uh, or, or there can be emphasis on uh, the, the welfare and prosperity that God can bring uh, to uh, the convert. 
or sometimes it's notably individualistic, that salvation becomes largely a matter of oneself in relation to God or in relation to your immediate uh, congregation, but not much else. And even though uh, I think a great deal of authentic Christianity does come through all, all our imperfect traditions, and, and, and we all are uh, parts of imperfect traditions. I think because uh, scripture and tradition somehow prevails uh, in, in all sorts of different uh, uh, traditions, uh, th- that there is authentic uh, Christianity there. Uh, nonetheless, I think we also have to listen to people like Edwards who point out uh, the dangers involved in, in that kind of blending of uh, the market economy, Americanism, and the gospel. Edwards was, first of all, a, a defender of the Great Awakenings, uh, but in, particularly in, in the wonderful treatise on religious affections, uh, he was uh, one of the most profound analysis of the tendency uh, that religion can have to uh, be celebrating self uh, in the name of celebrating God. Well, finally, uh, going uh, beyond uh, uh, the, uh, the critique of some self-centered evangelical pra- practices, uh, it seems to me, in conclusion, uh, the point to, to take home uh, is to go back to Edwards' emphasis on beauty as the point that encapsulates what evangelical Christians can most learn from Edwards today. It seems to me that beauty is not a word that first comes to mind if you say evangelical or Reformed uh, Baptist Christianity. That, that, that beauty isn't, is, isn't one of the, the, the major words uh, in, in, in our traditions. And I think that's one reason uh, why many people who are reared evangelical go to high Anglican or Eastern Orthodox uh, traditions that they're looking for, for something more. Uh, Edwards, by contrast, puts beauty, blazing beauty, at the center of the universe and sees it as both of infinite eternal significance and as the basis for the most practical uh, Christian fervor. Because of the intra-Trinitarian origins uh, uh, of beauty, Edwards, the beauty that Edwards sees is essentially personal. It's a beauty of, of love. Uh, one of his favorite themes is that the church is the bride of Christ and that uh, the, the relationship is so spiritually intimate that uh, the uh, image of sensuous physical love, as in the Song of Songs, uh, is an appropriate metaphor. And any true encounter with such personified beauty is transforming. It transforms uh, our highest uh, loves because it draws our loves to it. Uh, It captures our fundamental affections. Our will, which is driven, our our will is driven by our affections and our loves, is transformed to love not ourself first of all, but to love God and therefore uh, the transformed will will love uh, whatever uh, God loves. Uh, Hence, Beauty is the source of fervent action uh, based on love to God and all of God's, uh, God's creatures. 
19th, 19th century uh, Edwardsians often spoke about disinterested benevolence as the, the ideal, that, that uh, we love what God loves, which means we, we love uh, disinterestedly, not, not with ourselves uh, in the picture. In modern society, which is so often driven by functionalism and efficient managerial technique, even in much of its religious life, uh, beauty is a rare category except as it's trivialized uh, as a personal refuge or as uh, from, the, from the machinery of modernity. Uh, beauty, I think, is especially rare uh, as a source of uh, personal motivations. Uh, so it seems to me that uh, much as the Benjamin Franklins of the world have contributed to our comfort and help, uh, if that's the epitome of our heritage, as I think it is uh, so often for Americans, uh, we're ultimately left with a deadening instrumentalism. Uh, all we have if, if, if in, in that Franklin-esque culture uh, whatever its virtues, is sup finally superior physical or cultural power. Uh, those are our only, uh, our only comfort. But for Edwards, uh, we, we find someone who's pointing to uh, an overwhelming beauty that's not simply a temporary escape, uh, but rather is a beauty that's a basis uh, for a way of life uh, that is both practical and exhilarating. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>